Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. You know, when I went over in the tank in the Pentagon, when I first was elected vice president with President Obama, the military sat us down to let us know what the greatest threats facing America were, the greatest physical threats. This is not a joke. You know what the Joint Chiefs told us the greatest threat facing America was? Global warming. There was, I think, a moment of opportunity there for Fox News to come back to the real world. And what they've decided to do since then is double down on being what I call the bullshit factory. Your response uh, and explain to us how you approach your interviews, how you try to be fair. Sometimes I think I'm just a content machine for Fox News because they need something to complain about. But but in all seriousness, I think it is important to be critiqued and we all have to learn from criticism. What I was trying to do with Saki was more of a feature interview because I was not on the main political program interviewing her about news and day policy. So I was trying to do more of a feature interview and I thought it went well. But I think it's so important that we do listen to our good faith critics and we do try to learn from them. That's the only way that journalism in this country is ever going to get better and we're ever going to win trust back is by hearing our critics. And I thought one of the most important Biden lines in the inaugural, which I brought up with Saki, was when he said, we all have a responsibility to, to defend the truth and defeat the lies. In some ways, that is one of the, mm. the biggest tests of the Biden era. It's a challenge for Facebook, as you right. said. It's a challenge for the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world. You right. know, there's a bright line we can all draw between reality and disinformation. And that's a challenge both for you and me well, and for the White House, frankly. Let's take that to your book, because you know how this works. They're telling me I got 30 seconds, but tell us about your book out in paperback. <laughs> Why should people look at it now? 
I love hearing the rap in my ear, the, you know, the, the rap sign from the producers. I get it, Ari. I, I had to totally rewrite the book because so much has happened. You know, January 6th was a riot mm. of lies. And I think people don't appreciate just how many lies were aired on Fox and on Newsmax and on OAN in the run-up to the riot. So that's mm. really what I tried to explore. I also delved into why right-wing TV is radicalized so much because even compared to the Trump years, these channels have become more radical. And there are a lot of dissenters inside Fox who are disturbed about it. So I think that's the new story in the Biden years. It's saying arrest Fauci. That just shows how fair criticism goes to an unfair extreme place. Totally. And it's one thing to criticize someone and, and have a, a, a debate that's fair. It's another thing to say, like you just played, you know, he has blood on his hands. We should arrest him. We should prosecute him. We should throw him in jail and throw away the key. And that's sort of what you're seeing uh, really saturate right wing media these days. And it's, yeah, then it's you're really, really in like a fantasy land because that's never going to happen. So it's like a fantasy is the bigger picture, Oliver, that when Biden attacks don't stick, when attacks against Biden don't stick. The Fox world finds new targets because you wrote in our newsletter this week, uh, the critical race theory is an obsession of MAGA media, an obsession of Fox. It's talked about constantly in right wing TV. So is that an example of moving on to a new target? I think that's right. If you do watch Fox, if you pay attention to the right wing media uh, landscape, you see them more, more likely looking at other targets. Uh, it's not so much Biden. It's it's going after critical race theory. It's going after Fauci. And, and look, like Amanda said, there are some uh, room for debate here. You know, it, it should be debated in, in, in good faith. Um, and critical race theory could be one of the, uh, those aspects. But the problem is that you don't see that in these uh, uh, in right wing media. It's really just about attacking. It's, it's demonizing and it's uh, not conducive to a to a good debate. Well, Amanda, what is going on with CRT? What is the the what is the uh, former President Obama is also giving his take on the aftermath of the Capitol attack in an exclusive CNN interview. He told Anderson Cooper that some right wing media outlets are to blame for not only riling up their viewers, but profiting from their fear. Let's bring in CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin to talk about this and more. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello, Allison. It's been a while. It has been a while, indeed. I feel like we should address um, what's happened in the months since we've seen you, since some of our viewers may not know what has happened. So uh, I guess I'll recap. I'll do the honors. <laughs> Help yourself. Okay. <laughs> um, to quote Jay Leno, what the hell were you thinking? Well, obviously, uh, I wasn't thinking very well or very much. And um, it was something that was inexplicable to me. I think one point, I, I wouldn't exactly say in my defense, because nothing is really in my defense. I didn't think I was on the call. I didn't think other people could see me. I have spent the seven subsequent months, miserable months in my life, I can certainly confess, um, trying to be a better person. I mean, in therapy, trying to do some public service, um, working in a food bank, which I certainly am going to continue to do, working on a new book about the Oklahoma City bombing. But I am trying to become the kind of person that people can trust again. I've spoken to several of my former colleagues at The New Yorker about it, and, you know, they uh, were shocked and appalled. Um, I think they realized that this was not intended for them. I am sorry to my wife and to my family, but I'm also sorry to the people on the Zoom call. I'm sorry to my former colleagues at The New Yorker. I'm sorry to my current, fortunately still, colleagues at, at CNN. So you're saying there will be no surprises after this that will come out? 
<laughs> I, I, there are no surprises out there uh, about my conduct that I am worried that, 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 that there is like a there's a skeleton that's going to be found. Well, Jeffrey, um, on that note, should we move on to the news? <laughs> sure, let's go. OK, let's do that. Jeffrey, many of us have really missed having your legal analysis to guide us on our programs. Um, so let me be the first to welcome you back. Well, thank you, Allison. It is, it, it, it is good to be back, and I hope to be a better person off camera as well as on camera. <laughs> well, it sounds like you are, have some work to do and are doing the work. And uh... Dallas, Texas, good morning. You're on with Brian Stelter. Yes, good morning. Um, good morning. I just had to I call in because I think CNN is so liberal, and I think Fox is great. And as far as um, um, the uh, election, I'm glad that Biden won, even though I'm a conservative. I did not want Trump to win uh, a second uh, time. Uh, and... Um, but I watch Fox News because I feel like that uh, they they are fair and balanced. And CNN, I can't watch you, I, you know, and I wish I could. And MSNBC, they're worse than CNN. And I'm not, uh, uh, I'm a conservative, but I'm not part of the right. So that, that's my comments. Y'all have a good morning. Brian Stelter. Thank you. I appreciate your comment, and I, and I hope you'll give me a chance in the future. Uh, I think that it's important that CNN uh, cover all the news, uh, not from a liberal point of view, not from a conservative point of view, from a reality-based point of view. That's our job. If we fall down on the job, we want to know, and, and we want the feedback. Uh, I sometimes give out my email address on TV because I want viewers to know if you think we're getting it wrong, tell us, tell us what to do. Uh, my email address, by the way, is bstelter at, at gmail.com. I'll give it out here as well. Graham, Texas. This is Nani, a Republican. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, I quit watching MSNBC because Joy Reid became so um, so racist and bigoted. And then I quit watch, watching CNN because they allowed all their guests to come on there and do nothing but berate and speak so hateful and the name-calling that their guests were doing, it became intolerable. And then when it came to my local channels, which of there are three, I got so fed up with them not showing us anything that's going on anywhere, even the national section of the program. You got nothing. So, so Nani, what, what do you watch now? I watch a variety of all of them, but I will never go back to MSNBC or CNN. Never. Not when they allow their guests to come on there and to speak to the public the way that they allowed them to. It was completely disgusting. And then with that man that you had on there this morning, to sit there and take a full picture shot of him standing there in a suit in his underwear. I'm not sure what you're referring to, Nani, but uh, we'll take... Your viewership questions of uh, uh, Nani's uh, viewing diet, uh, Mr. Noyes. Well, I think you've got, you know, I think you, this is more, more of an example of people are, are uh, turning their backs on media that they don't think respects them, respects the way they want the news to be delivered. Uh, again, I think journalism would be better served 
if journalists stuck to the the knitting of journalism instead of trying to be uh you know political kingmakers or or drawing conclusions and and uh, and acting like politicians i mean she's talking about joy reed on msnbc well she is a a former democratic operative uh, in florida uh, you know she she comes to msnbc with a political background and i think it's pretty clear that she she engages in a pretty hardball version of politics every night on her show I think you know she certainly has her fans. People like that, uh, but it is it is it is much more politics than journalism. And I think people who are looking for some kind of our next question will come from Maria Fernanda at Univision. Thank you, Madam Vice President. For me, it's an honor because I actually got to vote for the first time as a nationalized citizen, and I voted for you. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 14th of June, year of our Lord, 2020. That's quite the intro. You got the global warming, him making an ass out of himself, a bunch of CNN things that I got to get in because we got a pretty much a subject relevant pointy fucking podcast today. We're not going to do a woke. We're just going to cover uh, th- some things that made me angry. And that's how we're going to cover this show. So I want to get those CNN. I mean, you see their focus, but then they talk about Fox, and then they bring Tubin back, and then you see him on C-SPAN getting nuked, and then you see our media saying to the vice president, I voted for you. Now, in retrospect, she's not a real journalist, but who gives a shit? That's our world. That That's our world. That's where we're at. We are jacked up. So, right off the bat, first things first, want to give a shout out to Matt. In Oregon, my brother, I made a nice trip down to Louisiana. We caught up. Uh, my plan today was to have a Henry Weinhardt's beer and a stogie he gave me and give a shout-out. We're going to save that for uh, Thursday show. show. Uh, I'm going to do one Thursday morning. And by then, I'll have the AR mount he made for me locked up right here. But as you can see, I started doing it. I need a longer adapter for my drill because I can't get through the hole because my stupid adapter sucks. But what a great visit. Um, I'm finally healthy. I got over the COVID shot. Um, Can breathe again. That's kind of cool. So life is good until I see shit like this people in Central Park as part of a homecoming week to show that the city is back from the pandemic. The concert is tentatively set for August 21st and no artists have been announced just yet. All right, Joe, this is big, sort of, except for the proof of vaccination. How's that going to work? Well, okay, so this is how it works. It's going to be really complicated. <laughs> You show that you've been vaccinated, <laughs> they let you in. So I, I don't know how they're yeah. going to work through that. But, yeah, especially, the, you know, you get in those theaters, they're pretty tight. I think everybody would be a lot more comfortable with that. But uh, we'll let everybody sort through that the way they want to sort through it. Free enterprise. I mean, do you, you know, it's your property. You can do what you want to do. But, Willie, the bigger news, very exciting. Bruce Springsteen uh, coming yeah. Uh, to Broadway, doing it quickly, and then, of course, the big concert in August. Great news. New York City, open for business, open for music, open for the arts this summer. Yeah, and how fitting that Springsteen would lead the way back. I I think you've seen the show, Joe. Um, It is one of the most moving performances I've ever watched in any setting, whether it's Broadway or a concert. 
or whatever. Now, granted, I'm a kid from New Jersey, so he is our music god. But the intimacy mm -hmm. of that show and the quiet of that show, as opposed to his big stadium shows where you're singing along with Thunder Road, and in fact, the ushers kind of have to come in when you, when you sit down at this Springsteen show and say, this is not a stand up and cheer, stand up and sing along kind of show. Yeah. It's listening to his autobiographical story, and it's just so powerful. And I think, like I say, so, so fitting that it's Springsteen who's going to bring Broadway back. And in June, the rest of Broadway will return in September, but he'll be there starting in, in about a month. Well, it's really exciting. You know, we were just talking around the office trying to figure out different packages we could do for New York reopening. And we were looking at an August date or maybe early September date for Broadway reopening, uh, the boss coming in this quickly uh, sends a great message, great message to everybody uh, that, you know, you can get out, New York City's opened up, uh, and, and start enjoying yourself. So that's going to be very, very exciting, Mika. Um, uh, as far as news today goes, uh, we, we did get a report uh, from, uh, from Capitol Hill on the one six commission it may not be everything that everybody wanted uh, but it certainly is a start uh, to start asking the right questions about what happened on january the sixth it is and i think it shows that there's a reason to answer more questions this happened very early this morning a bipartisan senate investigation of Jan the january sixth capital insurrection released Early this morning highlights the intelligence and personnel failures leading up to and during the attack. The report conducted by the both Senate Rules Committee and Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee details how ill-equipped and underprepared the Capitol Police Force was while defending the building and also the people inside it. For example, according to the report, of the seven civil disturbance units deployed, only four had the protective equipment needed, some of which was locked in a bus. There's this line from the report, quote, an officer reported hearing a lieutenant report, repeat, repeatedly ask over the radio, does anybody have a plan? The probe also found that neither the FBI nor DHS issued a threat assessment warning of potential violence targeting the Capitol that day. But there were severe limits to what the investigation could uncover. The committees say they were not provided with all the requested documents, including from the DOJ, DHS, and the House Sergeant-at-Arms. The report specifically does not address the root causes of the Capitol attack. The Senate committee also did not investigate former President Trump's actions that incited the insurrection. Let's bring in NBC News correspondent covering national security and intelligence, Ken Delanian. Uh, and Joe, you know, as we bring Ken in, I, I think what's frustrating when you look at these pieces of information that are coming forward, and it's great that we're learning more. This is a positive. Yeah. Um, there, there is. I mean, you, you and I even remember ourselves seeing and reporting on, but also hearing about this build up to January 6th. There was a big right. plan for that day, and it appeared the president and his people were even in a tent watching it, un it unfold with glee. Right, right. Well, I, it's, it's not like we're never going to be able to discover anything because 
There's not going to be right. a bipartisan, bicameral commission. So I think we need to look at the information we have right now and build on it, understanding that the FBI is investigating, the Senate will continue to investigate, the House will continue to investigate. These investigations will go on, the law enforcement will go on. So I think it's important for us. Ken, thanks so much for being with us this morning. We, 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 we so greatly appreciate it. Um, a, a couple of things stuck out in my mind, Ken. And again, we, we didn't get all the answers that we would want from a bipartisan commission. But the thing, a couple of things that jumped out at me, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. One, the intel failure. I mean, they, they, they explicitly had the warnings that this attack was coming. Uh, Capitol Hill police officers, sort of the, the semi-intel unit in there, and did not pass it on to superiors. You also have the question about the National Guard. I think highlighting the fact that the National Guard had been burned badly when Trump had ordered them and during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, the previous summer and were feeling burned by that and that may have caused some of their hesitancy to jump out and go up to the Capitol uh, and and again that the, the anguished cries from the officer does anybody have a plan does anybody have mm. a plan nobody seemed to have a plan for anything Ken Good morning, Joe. That's right. I think you guys laid it out really well. This was an incredibly frustrating and infuriating report, both for what's in it and also what's not in it. Because, as you said, Joe, one of the themes of this report was there was a massive intelligence failure here, which, by the way, none of the agencies acknowledge. They, they, they dispute that there was an intelligence failure. But this report lays it out very clearly. It says a key contributing factor to the tragic events of January 6th was the failure of the intelligence community to properly analyze, assess, and disseminate information to law enforcement regarding the potential for violence and the known threats to the Capitol. But here's the thing, Joe. Well, this report, and I'll get into this, does a fantastic job of explaining what the Capitol Police knew because the Capitol Police falls under their jurisdiction and they were able to get emails and internal traffic and, and interview key participants. This report sheds very little new light on what was going on inside the FBI and DHS and what intelligence they gathered and what threats they knew about. Instead, it simply relies on the public testimony we already saw from key FBI and DHS mm -hmm. officials before this committee. And so it's clear there was an intelligence failure on the part of not only the Capitol Police, but these national agencies. But the report, because they're hamstrung, because uh, Justice Department and DHS did not um, fulfill all their information requests, because it isn't a commission with that kind of sweeping subpoena power, they just didn't get access to this. Now, maybe they will down the line. We hope they do. Um, but that, to me, is a fury an infuriating omission. Um, that Now, on the Capitol Police front, Man, it's a devastating report because it really shows that, for example, the reporting that NBC News did about this site called the Donald.Win, where people for weeks before January 6th were talking about the tunnels around the Capitol, posting maps, talking about their plan to rush the perimeter, talking about attacking the Capitol. The Capitol Police knew about that. This report shows that the FBI passed that on to the Capitol Police, but they did not circulate it to their rank-and-file members. And it really portrays a situation where the rank-and-file was left out to dry. Um, and, and there are some harrowing quotes from individual officers who spoke to the committee. And let me just read one of them to you. Uh, I was horrified that no deputy chief or above was on the radio helping us. For hours, the screams on the radio mm. were horrific sights were horrific. The sights were unimaginable and there was a complete loss of control. For hours, no chief or above took command and control. Officers were begging and pleading for help for medical triage. So there was a lack of leadership 
on the Capitol, wow. part of the Capitol Police. Yeah. And Yogananda Pittman, who is the acting chief, was in charge of the intelligence components in the weeks leading up to the Capitol, guys. You know, Ken, as you read through this, you, you touched on it, but this does blow a hole through the idea that we've heard from some senators, by the way, that this was just a rally that got out of control, that a lot of these people were just tourists wandering through like they were on a visit, because as you say, it was back on December 21st, according to this report, where Capitol intelligence officers first learned and began to discuss the idea that the planned rally on January 6th included people who were going to bring weapons as you said, schematics of the Capitol building, looking at maps and tunnels and how to get in. So how, from December 21st to January 6th, the question is, was that information not shared and was security not beefed up because of it? Well, we know from this report that one of the reasons that didn't happen, Willie, is because the Capitol Police intelligence operations were completely dysfunctional. And they, ha they had some good information, but they didn't share it. Some of it wasn't even shared with the leadership of the Capitol Police. But the big unanswered questions, Willie, is wh why the FBI, which after all is the agency we rely on to protect the United States from domestic terrorism, why the FBI didn't step up and make sure that, that the Capitol was protected, why they didn't share and disseminate this intelligence to a greater degree, and why they're still saying today, Willie, that all this stuff that you're talking about, the maps and the schematics, that really was incredible intelligence. That's the FBI's position today, that that was not intelligence, that they had no intelligence that anyone was going to attack the Capitol. To me, that is a huge, gaping, unanswered question that, you know, a, we were hoping a commission was going to get to the bottom of, the way the 9-11 Commission got to the bottom of the incredible right. mistakes by the CIA and the FBI before 9-11. Um, it's not going to happen in that regard, but we hope that Congress continues to press on the FBI and DHS. Well, and Ken, before we get to you on, on other stories, um, isn't this all going to come out in some way, shape, or form? I mean, what the Republicans might have done uh, by, by voting against a commission right now in the Senate is maybe show a little bit about where they are politically and who they are. But there are still avenues in which this information will get to the public, are there not, especially through uh, Congress? Well, I sure hope so, Mika. I, I believe that you're right. Over time, it will come out. It's just much more difficult when you don't have the, the power of a commission to just drop a major subpoena mm -hmm. and say, we want everything you've got. You know, these bureaucracies will resist because there's embarrassing, I guarantee you, there's embar there are embarrassing emails and message trafficking within the FBI and DHS where people were raising the flag about this and they weren't listened to. And that's the kind of thing we need to see. And it's going to take a while for Congress to get at that. Hopefully they will, though, Mika. Ken, we also want to get to your reporting on yesterday's announcement by the Department of Justice that it recaptured the majority of that ransom, of the ransom that Colonial Pipeline paid in last month's ransomware attack. First, here's NBC News' Pete Williams on how the DOJ was able to pull this off. What thousands of Americans didn't know as they waited in long lines for gasoline after Colonial Pipeline revealed that it was hit with a ransomware attack is that the FBI was already investigating Darkseid, the group in Russia blamed for carrying it out. Colonial, it turns out, quickly told the FBI about the attack, and agents were able to find the Bitcoin account where the ransom was sent. The FBI figured out the password and took nearly all the money back out, says the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco. Today we turned the tables on dark side colonial paid 4.4 million to a bitcoin account in northern california which a judge ordered seized according to the u.s attorney in san francisco 
the extortionists will never see this money. Justice Department officials say it's a potent way to take the profit out of ransomware. So, Ken, this reminds me of uh, what we learned during the Mueller report that, yes, while the Russians were hacking us, we were inside their hacking units and actually knew what keystrokes they were striking, when they were striking it, who was at what terminal. Uh, it certainly does send a good message to, to people seeking uh, to get ransom uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, we sit here and go, well, my gosh, what can we do? Of course, our government doesn't tell us exactly what it's doing, but in this case, they were one step ahead of those people seeking the ransom. You're absolutely right, Joe. Every once in a while, Uncle Sam hits a home run, right, and does something bold and innovative. And, and as, as much as the FBI may have failed on the insurrection, this was a huge success for the FBI. And uh, I spoke with um, one of the agents in San Francisco who was involved in this operation yesterday, and he would not say exactly how they did it because he didn't want to give away the tradecraft because they want to do it again. Um, but he made it clear that mm. it, they, they didn't hack. They didn't sort of seize this stuff in sort of some illicit manner. They used legal process in California. But it wasn't as simple as that these guys dumped their Bitcoin in a wallet in the United States, which we initially thought when we saw that court document. It was more complicated. The FBI followed the Bitcoin because remember that all Bitcoin transactions are in a public ledger. They may be anonymous, but you can see the transaction. The FBI followed it potentially around the world through dozens of transactions. And then they saw it in a particular place and they somehow got the private keys, which is the equivalent of the password. And they're not saying how they got it. Uh, and they use those private keys to then seize the funds, the majority of the ransom that was paid. Now, because Bitcoin has fallen in price, the, the value of the Bitcoin fell to 2.3 million, but it's the majority. Um, and it's a big message from the government to the hackers that, you know, we will follow the money, we will go after you. And it's part of, I think, a larger, uh, very laudable uh, move by the Biden administration to take this ransomware threat seriously as a national security threat and to use all elements of national power to go after it. So, Ken, you have these big attacks that cripple a, a pipeline for several days. And then there's this smaller stuff, New York City, for example, the FBI, NYPD, investigating a cyber attack that hit the city's law department. It was on Sunday that officials disabled the computer network of the government's 1,000 or so lawyers after discovering the attack. Mayor Bill de Blasio says there's no ransom demand for now. It doesn't appear any information has been compromised, but caution that they're still investigating this. The New York Times reports the motive and identity of who's behind the attack is unclear, but the type of ransomware used is commonly deployed by criminal groups and hackers connected with foreign governments. All that to say, Ken, that these attacks are coming big, they're coming small, they're coming at places like the New York City Law Department, which is this city's uh, public defense attorneys. Yeah, that's right. And that's a really interesting case because it's not clear whether it was actually ransomware or whether it was a foreign government trying to spy under the guise of using criminal ransomware, right? And you're absolutely right, Willie. I mean, look, the, the steamship authority, which ferries passengers to Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket was hit. Um, more more uh, concerningly, many hospitals have, that doesn't even get make the national news, but a right. hospital system in San Diego, while Colonial Pipeline was going on, was locked up by ransomware. This is affecting the lives of average Americans. And that's why it's such mm -hmm. great news that 
the Biden administration is waking up to this threat and saying it's not just a criminal nuisance, it's a national security threat. We're going to use the CIA, the NSA, the, potentially the military to go after these criminals where they live if, if that's the only way to stop them. Because, um, you know, this, it's, not, it's not killing people right now, but it's harming American economic interests and our way of life. And, it's, and you know, the gov we expect the government to stop this stuff. Uh, NBC's Candelanian uh, covering a lot of ground for us this morning. Thank you very much for being on today and for your reporting. And we have much more uh, news to cover this morning, including President Biden's conversation with Ukraine's president ahead of his high-profile summit with Russian leader Vladimir Putin next week. The readout of the call says, quote, President Biden affirmed the United States' unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity in the face of ongoing Russian aggression. That's pretty clear. Uh, let's bring in NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli, and let's start right there with that statement. Mike? Well, Mika, you know, as Carol Lee and I write this morning, and you guys know so well, Joe Biden has been engaged in foreign policy for a half century. But as a senator and as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, on Capitol Hill, you're mainly reacting to what the president's deciding across town, across Pennsylvania Avenue. And then even as vice president, he was very much a part of the policymaking discussion, had a voice, uh, but it was President Obama's foreign policy agenda that he was carrying out, not his own. So this trip uh, overseas, which starts tomorrow, is really our first chance to see what the Joe Biden foreign policy is on the world stage. And in talking with advisors and officials, uh, it's really clear there are two sort of broad themes here that are guiding uh, the president's approach. First is this idea, which aides say he's really been obsessed with. He brings it up in meetings all the times. The idea that we're at a defining moment in this battle between whether democracies or autocracies like China, like Russia, will define the 21st century. And then what flows from that is very much a domestic foreign policy, what the president himself has called a foreign policy for the middle class. He's going to go uh, to the G7. He's going to go uh, to the EU meeting in Brussels, uh, talking about how his Western counterparts need to do a focus on what he's been doing here back home, which is trying to rebuild the middle class. A strong and thriving middle class is the foundation uh, for a strong democracy. But all of these other pieces, you mentioned the, the meeting yesterday with the NATO Secretary general, the phone call with the Ukrainian president, the show of force with our Western allies and the NATO alliance all builds up to that meeting. You could even call it a confrontation uh, with Russian President Vladimir Putin. There's been a very big debate about whether this president even should be meeting with President Putin. There's no deliverables, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, uh, even said that yesterday. Uh, but they also argue it's an important meeting on several respects. One is uh, this Russian president thrives on instability, and they think it is important to have that face-to-face -face meeting uh, to make sure uh, he understands where the U.S. is coming from. Uh, but it is going to be an important moment to mark a clear break, of course, from President Trump, the meeting he had with Putin in Helsinki, uh, to make it clear where the U.S. stands on some of these critical, critical issues of our time. NBC's Mike Memley, thank you very much. Willie? While President Biden prepares to travel abroad tomorrow, Vice President Kamala Harris continues her visit to Guatemala. As U.S. Border Patrol deals with a spike in migration at the Mexican border, the Vice President delivered this message to Guatemalans considering making that trip to the United States. The goal of our work is to help Guatemalans find hope at home. 
At the same time, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. Joining us now, immigration correspondent at Politico, Sabrina Rodriguez, who is traveling with the vice president. Sabrina, good morning. It's good to see you. Couldn't be more clear there from the vice president. Do not come. You will be turned back, she went on to say. This echoes a message we heard back in March from the president himself, where he said exactly the same thing. Don't come because of that spike right now along the border. So explain, if you can, a little bit the strategy and the thinking as Vice President Harris uh, travels to Guatemala. Yeah, so, you know, the vice president has started her first foreign trip and day one was in Guatemala City. Today will be in Mexico City meeting the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. But in her first day of the trip in Guatemala and meeting with the president here, she really wanted to toe this line of saying, you know, we are doing all these things to address root causes of migration. We are interested in helping improve the conditions in these countries, but aware of the political realities in the U.S. and aware of the tensions with Republicans. So the message wasn't only to Guatemalans, but it was to Republicans in some sense of saying we are not at telling people that there's an open border. We are not sending the message that you should come now. We say don't come now, but we are going to help improve the conditions here. So it was kind of towing that line of being blunt with the Guatemalans, being blunt about what the United States position is on people coming to the border, while also saying, you know, we do want to see things get better here. Yeah, the message was very clear. Politico's Sabrina Rodriguez traveling with the vice president in Guatemala City. Sabrina, thanks so much for being with us this morning. So, Joe, uh, you saw the vice president look dead into the camera and say, do not come. This obviously upset a lot of progressives. Some Democrats, including Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, posted that she was very disappointed in what the vice president said yesterday. Um, but again, this is something Joe Biden said two months ago as well. Right. And, and by the way, Kamala Harris is in great company. Uh, Barack Obama had uh, progressives on the left when it came to immigration on his back nonstop telling him that he was he was too harshly enforcing uh, our uh, rules regarding immigration. And uh, President Obama uh, continued to actually read the law follow the law, enforce the law. And that's one of the reasons why uh, illegal border crossings uh, were at a 50-year low when he left office. That's what Kamala Harris is doing now. You're right. Joe Biden said back uh, several months ago, don't come. You're going to be turned back. Uh, but, but the Biden administration itself, we all remember, uh, at the very beginning was accused of sending the wrong message uh, to a, a lot of people. Uh, possible immigrants in Central America. They're doing everything they can uh, to make sure that they, they are clear and unambiguous to migrants that if you come to the United States of America and try to enter on the southern border, you will be turned around. Uh, that's, that's important, yes, that's important for political reasons. People are gonna focus a lot on the political reasons, but also the humanity of it all. There is still a crisis on the southern border. Uh, there is still much suffering on the southern border, uh, and it needs to be alleviated. And the administration uh, looks like they're, they're doing the right thing here, sending the vice president of the United States down to deliver that very clear message to stay home. We're going to help you. We're going to do everything we can to make sure your life is better here. 
but don't come to America because we just don't we don't have the ability to let you in right now. And still ahead on Morning Joe, a much needed new option for the more than six million Americans with Alzheimer's disease. More on the first new therapy for the disease in nearly two decades and why there is some controversy surrounding it. Plus, during the 2020 campaign, Joe Biden accused Donald Trump of treating the Justice Department like his own personal law firm. So why is the Biden Justice Department now defending Trump in a personal matter. We'll explain that. You're watching Morning Joe. We'll be right back. Up over Washington. Welcome back. Joining us now, member of the New York Times editorial board, Mara Gay, and national security expert and columnist for USA Today, Tom Nichols. Let's get in some of our must-read opinion pages this morning, and we'll start with this one from The Atlantic, entitled, Biden's latest challenge could be insurmountable. Pete Nichols writes in part, if Biden remains fixated on winning Republican votes, that might leave him weakened. That might be a problem, he is saying. Come 2022, with fruitless negotiations stalling his agenda, that could cost his party its congressional majority and give Biden the unmistakable whiff of a lame duck president fated to serve a single term. As Democrats see it, passing the boldest possible legislative package is a way to showcase what is at stake in the midterm elections, in which case it's pointless to spend months pursuing a more modest package that Republicans are likely to reject anyway. One of Biden's instincts, honed from decades serving in the Senate, is to cut a deal. But the Republican senators, amenable to give and take, are long gone. Now the party is a creature of Donald Trump. If Biden is reluctant to absorb that reality, if the negotiations bleed into the campaign season, he is at risk of losing everything. And Joe, I can't help but disagree, but, but agree, actually, with this concern. Yeah. Although I know that Biden's heart is all about trying to reach out to both sides and trying to be mm -hmm. a president to all people. And you do that through bipartisan legislation. Yeah, you certainly do. I mean, right now, we're not even talking about what Joe Biden wishes for or what he right, hopes for. We're talking about politics being, I think it was Bismarck who said politics is the art of the possible and more. Um, forget about 60 votes with Republicans right now on most measures. Uh, there are problems with Joe Biden even getting to 50 votes inside of his own caucus. So when, you know, this was a great debate to have about a month or two ago. <laughs> right now, Joe Biden just needs to pass something. And the question is, how do you do it when you've got 48 votes in your own Democratic caucus and Republicans who don't want to help at all? I, I think it's an enormous, it is the enormous challenge probably of, of Joe Biden's presidency once we get out of the coronavirus pandemic. I, I hope that he has learned the lessons that Barack Obama learned uh, you know, the party, the Republican Party is even farther down, down the unreasonable road, obviously, at this point. But the reality is that Joe Biden is going to have to go big if he's going to keep his majority. And by the way, keep people, you know, voters in Georgia uh, engaged, for example, and willing to show up at the polls to give Democrats the majority that they need. So they're going to have to find an end run around this. I mean, I continue to believe that the way forward is not necessarily uh, to deal make 
uh, only with Republican legislators, but actually to go directly to the American people and make the case for uh, local infrastructure programs um, and other uh, other things that I think Republican voters may be more interested in than their representatives at this point who are totally radicalized. Um, you know, that might be optimistic as well, but we do have to find some deal making. And I, I think it's not going to uh, happen if there's no one sitting across the table from him. Uh, I, I really think that waiting for Republicans to come to the table is a mistake. I couldn't agree with Peter Nicholas more. Well, and that, that, that's a great point about going over the heads of uh, politicians in Washington, D.C. We've seen other politicians do that in the past. Barack Obama was great reaching out in a variety of ways. Ronald Reagan always famously did it, went over the heads of, of everybody in Washington, D.C. who told him what he could or couldn't do and communicated directly with the public. That also, Tom Nichols, lines up with uh, the legislation that Joe Biden passed, the COVID legislation. Republicans didn't support it, but 75% of Americans did. It may just be a good political win for Joe Biden to go out there and push his infrastructure bill across America, get 65, 70, 75% of Americans supporting it, and dare the Republicans to just say no. Yeah, part of the problem for Joe Biden is that we live in a post-policy world um, where we the do. public doesn't, doesn't focus on policy, um, you know, where the Democratic Party still thinks that, well, if we just explain this enough times or if we put on a white paper or something uh, that, you know, we can uh, somehow have a platform for cooperation. Uh, when the real problem is that for most of the people in the country and especially for the Republicans, this is just about inflicting wins and losses. And so Biden's instincts, as you say, honed in the Senate to put out a package and then deal on, on pieces of it uh, isn't going to work this time around. And I think the one thing I think we have to give credit to the president for on this is to say, look, if he gets to the point where he does have to go to the American people or to go along with just pushing this through on a straight party line vote, he can at least say, look, I did everything I could. I talked to the Republicans for as long as I could. But I think we have to add one more thing here, Joe, and that is you know, that there's there's some unforced errors on the Democratic side. I mean, when you've got Manchin and King basically being top cover uh, for other Democrats whose staff are in The Washington Post and The New York Times saying, hey, a lot of us didn't like, you know, S1 either. Uh, that's a that's a bad thing to have happen. So it may be time to just think about what are the things you can pass and then if the Republicans won't come with you, even on the, the bare minimum of things like, well, I don't know, protecting democracy, uh, then, you, you know, you do go ahead with that party line vote. Um, but I think that the idea of negotiating over this amount of money or that program, um, we don't live in that kind of world anymore, unfortunately. I wish we did, but we don't. Joe, I was going back and reading on this last night and on uh, May of 2019, a couple of weeks after Joe Biden got into the campaign, he was up in New Hampshire on a campaign stop and he said, Republicans, mark my words, are going to have an epiphany. He called it an epiphany. He said, not a joke. They're going to have an epiphany when there's a new president. They can push Donald Trump to the side and we're going to get back together, sit at the table just like I did in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s as a senator. I think talking to people, he's been genuinely surprised that that kind of comedy just doesn't exist anymore that you can get in the Oval yeah, Office, you can invite everybody in, and they may sit there and listen to you, but then they walk out the door and trash you in a tweet and try to raise money off of it. 
<laughs> I mean, Kevin McCarthy, man, there yep. weren't a lot of people like Kevin McCarthy allowed in, in Congress in the 1970s, yeah. certainly not in leadership. He wouldn't have got within 100 miles of leadership. So you, that remains one of the most tacky, classless things I've ever seen. You go in for your bipartisan meeting with the president, then you come out and you, you call him a socialist or whatever else, and you, you try to, to raise money off yep. of a bipartisan meeting you just had. But, but you know, yesterday I, I saying to Mika, we've got to stop being shocked by the fact that there are three parties, a Republican, a Democratic, and an insurrectionist party. We've got to be stop, stop yeah. being shocked every day that this insurrectionist party actually is illiberal and anti-democratic. It just, that's the reality of it. They're the third party. And we, it, likewise, I think at some point, presidents have to stop being shocked that this is how Washington is. What did George W. Bush said? Because he worked with a Democratic Lieutenant Governor in Texas, he said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. He was gonna be, bring people together. How did that work? Barack Obama in 2004, there is no red state America. There is no blue state America. There is just the United States of America. Again, another president who believed he could bring Washington together. It didn't work there. It's not working with Joe Biden. I keep being surprised at some point. We need to stop stop being surprised by it all. Uh, and and yeah. really, I'm the first to say, try to work with the other side. Do everything you can to work with the other side. And when they just won't work with you politically, you just run them over. You just run them over and you don't look back and you go and you you get your goal. You, you, you play hardball and you just keep going until you win. Here's a problem with that right now. And I think one thing that the column ignores, you've got you've to have the votes to do that. Yeah. And again, mm. even if they can't get 60 votes, they need 50 votes and they're not getting 50 votes right now on much of, of what they're pushing forward. New York Times had a great editorial this past weekend about H.R. 1. We've been saying it for a month now. Don't go with H.R. 1. Go with H.R. 4. Go with John Lewis's extension of the Voting Rights Act. You can get that. But Democrats, Democrats haven't been listening to a former right-wing Republican. I have no, re uh, no, no reason to expect that they ever would. But maybe they'll listen to the New York Times editorial page. Maybe they'll understand. They've got to get realistic. They've got to understand the windows closing. They've got to start figuring out what wins they can put up on the board. Like they got to start putting some points up on the board right now. It's time to stop dreaming about what might be and start looking at what can be. Yeah, and that's what a lot of Senate Democrats have been saying for a while. Forget the Republicans, they're not gonna work with you. They made that clear, put your head down and plow ahead. And you're right that Senator Joe Manchin has said, I'll give you the John Lewis legislation, just not S1. As we talk about the insurrectionist party, the name Donald Trump comes to mind. The latest column in the Washington Post is titled, Too Many People Are Still Underestimating the Trump Threat, written by Max Boot. Max writes this, quote, while Trump is not a serious person, he is a serious threat to our democracy. And we make a grave mistake if we dismiss him as a punchline. What has made dictators and demagogues so dangerous is their ability to pull vast numbers of people into their personal delusions, to turn their paranoid fantasies and megalomaniacal dreams into a harsh reality for millions. Trump has the same malign gift. If Trump runs again, he will easily win the Republican nomination. 
despite his unpopularity with Democrats and independents, he might even win the presidency again, particularly if his opponent is not President Biden, a blue-collar white guy, but Vice President Harris, a woman of color who is a perfect target for his racist and sexist taunts. Please don't make the same mistake we made back then of assuming he is not a viable candidate for the presidency. His ability to hornswoggle tens of millions of voters is no laughing matter. That's Max Boot writing in the Washington Post. Tom Nichols, uh, is that where you are on Donald Trump right now? About all this than I was a year ago. And the only place I would take issue with Max is with the word hornswoggle, that somehow... Uh, Donald Trump is casting this this Jedi mind trick and fooling tens of millions of people. The more dangerous part is that he's giving tens of million people, tens of millions of people exactly what they want. That he is the expression of their resentful and paranoid politics. That this is not some sort of clown show uh, that is, you know, that people are voting for merely because they are misled or entertained that there is a dark core to what Trump offers people that tens of millions of Americans like. And that's the part that yeah. we're going to have to contend with, whether Donald Trump is the nominee uh, or um, you know, some Trump-like figure. You can already see that the Republican Party is not capable of producing um, statesmen and stateswomen. It's, not, they're, it's, it's gone. Their ability to do that is over. They are all just trying to produce imitations of clownish, populist culture warriors uh, because that is what that entire segment of the population wants. And I think we are actually in for, you know, that the American democratic system is in for the fight of its life over the next two years. And it comes back to why won't the Democrats uh, take that threat more seriously and react to it like the national emergency that it is. Because I still think when it comes to liberal democracy, we are in an ongoing national emergency. We, we are in an ongoing national emergency. And I agree with so much of, of what, what Tom said, Mika, though I would give any, any person writing an op-ed extra points for, 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 for sneaking the word <laughs> horn snoggle. And when you're I talking about the existential threat to American democracy. And I'm just checking right here, Willie, on my sheet. Uh, you actually get double points if you and your family mm -hmm. immigrated from the former Soviet Union and you snuck the word horn snoggle <laughs> in to a, an op-ed. I thought that was one of the Quidditch teams in Harry Potter, the horn swaggles. <laughs> Wasn't that them? You know, I, I got to admit, I'm from the Deep South. I have no idea what horn snoggle <laughs> means, but I like it. I well, like it a lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it the next time I go to a NASCAR race. Well, he just won't go. Him on the corner. I'm going to get a beer. I'm just going to All have right, to ahead, believe Mika. that this was kindness because, he, you know, millions of Americans are with him. And as Liz Cheney put it, you know, they've been misled in many ways. And we do have to well, understand how we got here. And, you know, this is sort of why, um, you know, as Joe Biden tries to navigate trying to be bipartisan in this type of atmosphere where, you know, we're arguing over facts rather than policies and concepts 
bringing this country into the future. Um, but post-Trump, there needs to be an investigation that looks into how we got here, and that's why the January 6th Commission would have been so important, or looking into the events that led up to January 6th, Mara Gay, because I'm not just talking about the weeks before. I'm talking about the months before and even the years before, and it may be the one way that perhaps there can be an explanation to the American people who were hornswoggled or misled in, in any way by this man who is a threat to our democracy to this moment. I think that's right, Nika. I think this is another area where Democrats really need to get serious about talking about what this threat is. Uh, I think you said it really well, Joe, a minute ago, where you talked about uh, the need to stop being surprised by all of this uh, and start taking it seriously. You know, it, it's really concerning to me that the Democrats haven't just gone ahead at this point and said we're doing this on our own in terms of uh, getting a commission together uh, to explain to the American people how we allowed the insurrection to take place in the Capitol. I think that really needs to move forward swiftly. Um, you know, the reality is here that uh, we have a large percentage of the American population. I don't know how big it is, but we have tens of millions of Trump voters who uh, continue to believe that their rights as citizens are under threat by simple virtue of having to share the democracy with others. Um, I think uh, as long as they see Americanness as the same as one with whiteness, this is going to continue. We have to figure out how to get every American a place at the table in this democracy, but how to separate Americanness, America, from whiteness. Until we can confront that and talk about that, this is really going to continue. I was on Long Island this weekend uh, visiting a really dear friend, and I was really disturbed. I saw you know, dozens and dozens of pickup trucks with, uh, you know, uh, explicatives against Joe Biden uh, on the back of them, yep. uh, Trump yep. flags, and some cases just dozens of American flags, which, you know, uh, is also just disturbing because essentially the message was clear. It was, this is my country. This is not your yep. country. I own this. And so until we're ready to have that conversation, this is going to continue. What really is concerning to me as well is it's it's not just Democrats in Congress. I think there's a large percentage of Americans, even some of my colleagues uh, in journalism, who are invested in some way in pretending that this isn't the threat that it is. That is the real concern. Because, you know, the Trump voters who are not going to get on board with democracy, they're a minority. You can marginalize them long term. But if we don't take the threat seriously, then I think we're all in really bad shape. Totally agree. Mara Gay and Tom Nichols, thank you both very much for coming on this morning. And coming up a couple of weeks ago, our next guest was the answer to New York Times Sunday crossword clue. Blank more. What's the answer? Anti-poverty entrepreneur of the Robin Hood Foundation. The answer, of course, was Wes. Great George Carlin uh, said that when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in a flag and carrying a Bible. Uh, and let's not forget that Trump 
took the flag and wrapped himself, literally wrapped himself in it and carried a Bible to the Capitol uh, before that, uh, that, that, that last incident. So, um, and these are Trump Americans, I presume, who are doing this. I've kind of resented, I mean, the flag belongs to all of us. But, you know, to, to follow a guy who mocks servicemen, who colludes with foreign governments to, to influence our election, who abuses and, and disrespects the Constitution, and then wave the flag in the name of that person, in the name of those anti-constitutional, un-American, undemocratic principles, that is really the irony of life. Um, by the way, I will be um, uh, displaying the American flag at my house on July 4th because I am also a, a very patriotic person. I actually do see the point she was making. I think uh, the flag has been somewhat co-opted mainly during this this former Trump era, kind of like the masks. It became like a rallying cry of spotting people in a crowd. Anyone who has a family knows we're the most critical of the things we love the most. So I often think that when um, people on the left or Democrats are critical of it, uh, some people misinterpret that to mean that we must not be patriotic. And I believe um, that this flag can come back to. I'm so surprised, actually, uh, that she is receiving this kind of backlash. And as Megan mentioned during the last segment, you know, when someone of color, a black woman, is telling you her feelings, people need to listen uh, and not, you know, uh, repudiate it and not say, well, that can't be true. Because you have, in, in many respects, the former disgraced, twice impeached, one-term president to thank for politicizing the American flag. Remember that on January 6th, just a few months ago, you had the Capitol rioters tearing down the flag and replacing it with the Trump flag. You had them waving the American flag and then beating police officers with that flag. That's what was going on just on January 6th. It is their country, not our country. I remember very well that there was a Confederate flag being, being uh, tossed around, you know, flown around in the United States Capitol. I re also remember very well when recently when I was with my children in North Carolina in the Outer Banks with people in pickup trucks with Confederate flags flying alongside the U.S. flag. And that scared me. And the same message was there. You don't belong here. We belong here. And I was afraid of that. And so, yes, when I drive into a neighborhood and it's not July 4th and I'm not in a predominantly military household neighborhood and there are flags, American flags everywhere alongside Trump flags, alongside flags in a, with, with uh, stars in a circle. I feel threatened because the message is very clear. It's a message of white. They hate you. They just fucking hate you. There's no way around not saying it. I mean, it was D-Day, it's people in flags, it's... What the fuck? What the actual fuck? And then the New York Times editorial board decides to come in and... You know, just basically shit on it. And say, you know, it's us. It's us. We're taking her out of contact. 
facts. New York Times and Turbo member Mark Gay comments on MSNBC was irresponsibly taken out of context. Her argument was that Trump and many of his supporters have politicized the America flag. The attacks on her today are ill-informed and ground in bad faith. Here, uh, here's just one video. The national anthem is racist. Here's why. The holiday known as the 4th of July marks the adoption of the Declaration of Independence by the 13 original American colonies in 1776. The Star Spangled Banner, however, was not considered to be the U.S. national anthem until 1931. Initially titled The Defense of Fort Mahenry, the anthem was written in 1814 by a white dude named Francis Scott Key. In order to understand why the national anthem is so problematic, you gotta know Key's backstory. For starters, Francis Scott Key didn't believe in freedom for all. In fact, he was a slave owner. He thought slaves were an inferior race of people who were untrustworthy and indolent. As district attorney for the city of Washington, he fought to defend slavery, opposing abolitionist cases. It's pretty fair to say dude was a racist. Back to the national anthem. The year was 1814. The US and the British were nearing the end of the War of 1812. Key was on a British ship in the Baltimore Harbor, negotiating the release of his home. Then on September 13, 1814, the British Navy launched an epic attack on Fort McHenry. It lasted 25 hours. Somehow the military base endured the attack and the next day, the American flag was still standing. He was so inspired by the sight of the flag that he wrote the Star Spangled Banner, which started out as a four stanza lyrical poem. But that third stanza, it's flaming trash. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country should leave us no more. Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's Jason Johnson. He's the political editor at The Root and an MSNBC contributor. His article, Star Spangled Bigotry, The Hidden Racist History of the National Anthem, reintroduced this story into the nation's memory. The hirelings were mercenaries, and then the slaves. He was referring to former black slaves who had joined the British. So he's clearly saying, nothing could save you all. The colonial marines were runaway American slaves who fought as sailors and soldiers for the British in return for their freedom. Why was Key hating on them? Francis Scott Key was at the Battle of Bladenburg, and he was a lieutenant at the time uh, for the U.S., and he ran into a battalion of colonial marines. I mean, they snatched his chain. He was beaten soundly. He was never particularly happy about the idea of free black men, but then free black men taking him to the woodshed was more than his ego could handle. In other words, the author of the U.S. National Anthem, Francis Scott Key, had a bruised ego because he got his behind whooped on the battlefield. If you break this down sort of line by line, this is his clapback. I'm not surprised by the hypocrisy of this song. The national anthem written by a slave-owning white man condemns valiant black soldiers who were fighting for their own liberation. Anyone who tries to reformat and reboot and reconstitute and play linguistic gymnastics and view this stanza as something other than what it was is trying to put their 2018 attitudes as a way to rationalize and justify what was endemic white supremacy, white nationalism, and bigotry on the part of a man who lives to create what is supposed to be 
one of the most for criminy's sake let's just take an effect that we spent a whole summer burning shit down we spent a whole summer saying that the betsy ross flag i mean nike threw out shoes for christ's sake the flag was garbage fire until biden got elected then we brought the betsy ross flag out we put flags all over the fucking place I, it's now at like 7.50, wrote this. I mean, we spent a whole summer. My parents got fucked with. This is fucking gaslighting. It's a lie. It's horse shit. It, it's just, everybody nuked it. I never had a tweet like so many times. I mean, you got the root there's nothing wrong with the American flag, but Mara Gay was right. Anyone who flies the American flag on a pickup truck is a whole different breed of white people. You know, if you insert black people, that's racist as shit. I'm just saying, it's racist. And then you got the uh, new speaks for all veterans because she, it, he is a tranny. As a military veteran, I completely agree with Margay. It is disturbing George Omega flags on trucks and performative nonsense that are absolutely intended to communicate that America is a conservative white country. It's an intentional signal. She's right. This is why Mara Gay is talking about, I'll speak for myself here, I've folded countless American flags for loved ones and fallen service member, and when I see this, all I can think is, yeah, the person is definitely an asshole, mostly likely a coward. I nuked that dumbass, too, because I was like, uh, you know, no, you don't speak for all vets. Who the fuck are you to speak for all vets? You're not all vets. You don't get to speak for them. You know, before you decide to become a it, you were despised by the left you love now. This was my reply. I didn't know I'd thrown it in here. I'm a vet. I see the opposite. Your I speak for all vets because I'm woke bullshit is lame. Your party's U.S. flag is racist should disgust you. Violence in Portland towards flying U.S. flags on a home and make you angry. It doesn't, though. It says a lot about you. Once you went woke. I mean, let's be honest. They got a new one. I'm not doing it till a Thursday show. They just revised their gay flag. And then, of course, here's how CNN, instead of saying, hey, that's pretty fucking anti-American, New York Times editorial board mayor Gay talked on Tuesday morning, Joe, about seeing drivers along Island with pro-Trump and Biden signs of flags. And in some cases, just dozen American flags was also just disturbing because she said, the message is clear, this is my country, blah, blah, blah. I got a Fox push alert for the story about something Mara Gay said on TV, says WAPO Dave Weigel. This is going to keep happening so long as this issue animates conservative, wokeness, CRT, etc. are the ones that Biden doesn't talk about, but media academics figures do. By 7.30 p.m., the New York Times was defending gay, calling the right-wing attack ill-informed. Republicans pounce. Every time the left does something wrong, it's Republicans pounce. Not what they did wrong. Here are just a few. The Star Spangled Banner racist lyrics. Do we remember this? Do we need to go back? Star Spangled Bigotry. That's the root NBC's website.
When racists try to poison our national symbols, we shouldn't just surrender. No, you guys came up with that. The average American citizen had no idea that white supremacists, because they don't know any white supremacists, even though before Biden just said that it's the global warming, we were told white supremacists was the biggest threat to America and shit. Remember that? We didn't know Betsy Ross... I mean, I knew the Gadsden flag was a Tea Party thing, so that was nuked a long time ago. And then she this is her reply, because once again, she's never wrong. See, I'm being trolled with black American flag, uh, with American flag this morning. Trolling a black journalist with American flag is not the own some people think it is. So I sent a picture, literally, of folding a flag over a coffin replies why should it be an own it's the american flag it's beautiful no you are being trolled for being anti-american no one cares about your color gender who you want as sex partner what car you drive what does this have to do with race july 4th coming up terrifying but this is the left this is how they are enter omar in either cases that domestic courts can uh, both can and will prosecute alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I would emphasize that in Israel and Palestine, uh, this includes crimes committed by both the Israeli security forces and Hamas. In Afghanistan, it includes crimes committed by the Af- Afghan national government and the Taliban. So in both of these cases, if domestic courts can't or won't pursue justice, and we oppose the ICC, where do we think the victims of these supposed uh, crimes can go for justice? In, in both of these cases, if domestic courts can't or won't pursue justice, and we oppose the ICC, where do we think victims are supposed to go for justice? And what justice mechanisms do you support for them? Thank you. Um, First, let me just say at the outset that um, it is impossible not to be profoundly moved by uh, not just the uh, uh, loss of life in the recent uh, violence and and conflict, uh, but especially uh, the children whose whose lives were lost. And we, we, we all have a you know, a tendency to throw statistics and numbers out there, but uh, we were talking about um, boys and girls, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, as well as men and women. And uh, I think uh, none of us, whatever from whatever perspective we we come, uh, can can lose sight of that. So that's one thing that's that's very important. Look, I you know our views on um, uh, on the ICC and its its jurisdiction. We continue to believe that absent uh, a Security Council uh, referral or absent uh, the uh, request by the the state itself, uh, that that's not appropriate. I continue uh, to believe that whether it is uh, the United States or Israel, uh, both of us uh, have the uh, the means. Mr. Secretary, I I do understand that point. I'm asking what mechanism do you think is 
is available to them. I, I believe that we have, uh, whether it's the United States or Israel, we both have uh, the mechanisms to um, make, make sure that there is accountability uh, in, uh, in, in any situations where there are concerns about um, uh, use of force uh, and uh, human rights, uh, et cetera. I believe that both of our democracies have that, uh, have that capacity, and we've demonstrated it, and uh, we'll need to continue to demonstrate it going forward. And in the case of Afghanistan? Uh, with regard to Afghanistan, if it's our uh, objection, as you know, was, was to the assertion of jurisdiction uh, over the United States in the absence of a Security Council uh, uh, referral. Uh, and uh, I believe that uh, we have uh, the, uh, the means, if there are any uh, uh, cases to, uh, to be brought, to, um, to adjudicate them and to, uh, to find justice. How many times does she get to get away with this? How many times? Representative Ilya Omar puts out a statement clarifying remarks earlier this week. I was in no way equating terrorist organizations with democratic countries with well-established judicial systems. I don't see that in there. There's her little statement. I don't see it. This brings up a whole can of whoop-ass that's not whoop-ass. I mean, nowhere in this bullshit from the only the Jewish representatives in the Democratic Party. Only the Jewish. Not the Democratic Party at home. No. We didn't do that. I mean, why would we? And they asked her to clarify, which made her clarify. So this is a response. It's shameful for colleagues to call me when they want need some support to now put out a statement asking for clarification and not just call. The Islamophobic tropes in this statement are offensive. The constant harassment and silencing from the signers of this letter is unbearable. You see what they get away with? This is the stuff they get away get away with. Citing an open case against Israel, U.S. Hamas, and Taliban, and the ICC is in comparison to from deeply seated prejudice. You might try to undermine these investigations or deny justice to their victims, but history has taught us, is what she meant to say, that the truth can be hidden or silenced forever. Matt Whitlock. Dem reps who are Jewish call out Omar. Omar calls them out for putting Islamophobic tropes in their call out and argues they're trying to silence her. People's response. I read it. They can't find it. Nobody can find it. She is such an Islamist. This is from Hamas. Hamas. They like her. They appreciate her stance on justice. Hamas issued press release denouncing U.S. Representative Ilian Omar for equating the Palestinian resistance to the crimes of Israel and U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. They appreciate her stance on justice, especially for Palestinians, but ask her to describe events accurately. And this probably upset them, or her. Hamas not being happy with her. Probably chapter balls a little bit. Probably. And then, of course, 
Republicans pounce with the New York Times. Yeah, Republicans pounce. That's how we cover it, just like the first one. Republicans eager to stoke outrage and portray Democrats as anti-Israel. Jump on Omar! They just elbow her! Republicans pounce. We bounced! We actually just called out that she's a fucking Islamist anti-American. But, you know, the point of it all is that every one of these creepy callies come out. Every fucking one of them. Oh, my God. I'm tired of callies from both DNR demonizing Momar. Their obsession with policing her is sick. She has the courage to call out human right abuses no matter who's responsible. That's better than callies that took it away to send their politics. Cacatrain. Omar suggests American Israel with a moral equivalent of Taliban and Hamas, and she was, has not walked it back or clarified her statement, which she could have done if she didn't actually believe that. When was the last time Omar called out the human rights abuses of Hamas launching rockets at civilians? She accuses all Americans and all Jews of murdering children. When called out, she says we're racist. I'm sorry, but her engaging in egregious anti-Semitic canards shouldn't be excused by her hiding behind the guise of human rights, and it doesn't excuse Rashida Tlaib either. No. Then comes googly eyes. Pretty sick and tired of constant vilification, intentional mischaracterizations. The public target of Ilian Omar come from our caucus. They have no concept for the danger they put her in by skipping private conversations and leaping to feeling targeted news cycles around her. Let's think about all the times you've said conservatives are murderers, baby killers, spreading COVID. And then people get beat up. Did we ever do it the opposite way? Ask it for a friend, because I don't see it. Omar says something anti-Semitic, people call her out AOC. Eh, that's that's just what we do. We just, Curly Bush, got that fucking BLM activist, here she is. Stop attacking idiot Omar! Yeah! The page didn't open, so let me read it really good in my bitch face. Um... Stop attacking us. I'm not surprised when Republicans attack black women standing up for human rights, but when it's our Democrats, it's especially hurtful. We're your colleagues. Talk to us directly. Enough of the anti-blackness and Islamophobia. You're not being criticized for being black. You're being critiqued for your ideas. I'm sorry, but it's not an issue of racism, and you shouldn't make it one. She engaged in spreading anti-Semitism, and she's not above reproach. Stop claiming this has anything to do with her skin color and religion. That's vile and wrong. It has everything to do with the fact your fellow squad members compare the U.S. and Israel to Taliban Hamas, and you're fucking anti-American. You're all anti-American. You hate America. You love everybody else. Ugh. This is what the you know. Steve Calise, Majority Taylor Green have been removed of assignments for things that were construed as racist. Or anti-Jewish. And this is the bull. I'm not even reading it. They get away with it. The media lets it. There's no media outrage on this shit. There's no. This is the media. Um, Republicans pouch and Muslim women and bullshit. Yeah, shut the fuck up. 
Then you have another fucking d- Democrat is more patriotic to American than any RRD criticizing her. We have to hold ourselves in Israel, our closest ally, responsible for crimes, just as we hold our other government actors accountable for crimes. It's how we reconcile our past with our present and grow as a nation by saying America is the Taliban. Yeah, there are actors in this country like Taliban. You guys. Monuments, scratch, there's only one religion, intersectionality. Sound familiar? Does to me, you're the Taliban, but the white hasn't been the Taliban in a very long time. There's no, you must be a Christian anymore. Those days are long gone. But you motherfuckers, yeah, you, you're just fucking up. Uh, you know, when progressives tell gun people, oh, this is the next thing. I had one more. We have to, sh- it's the same fucking article. Uh, fuck it, I'm done. I'm done. Tony's done. We're, we're moving on. We're moving on. So for a break before we get into the Capitol and Lafayette Park, I had a military segment set up. So because I'm so late and I didn't get to do all my shows, what I'm going to do now is play from worst to best Army recruiting videos. Enjoy. Stop! 割舍一声道是一组重算生命扛起使命人民军队的力量story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. It begins in California with a little girl raised by two moms. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality 
I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed. Doctors said she might never walk again, but she tapped into my family. the Army can offer you. Skills, education, health care. Call 1-800-645-ARMY and you'll also get this free boonie hat. Whatever you're looking for, the Army... So there, of course, you got the woke. You have the Chinese one that scared the shit out of me. Army of One. Uh, it was just garbage file. Before we get in the Capitol and play some sound bites, this lefty thing, once again, shows what I keep saying every time we do a show. We talk about how conservatives are so violent. This guy basically said, I'm not squimish. I will take a gun out of your hand. Just saying. There's the hill on Tubin. I missed this in the beginning. Movement provides happy endings for Jeffy Tubin. Yeah, you get the zinger? I think it's funny. I'm not going to cover Tubin. Tubin. Tubin pretty much sums up everything we know about our media. They can do whatever they want. There is no standards. Bill O'Reilly gone. So many uh, fucking Eric. Um, Eric. Uh, I don't even remember his name. The guy who used to run the five. He's gone. So, yeah. And before we get into this capital shit, because the report came back and then we have Lafayette part, just remember who uses the filibuster. Just remember that. Just, just remember it. That it, it is the left that uses it. It is the left that uses it. That That's what happens. So, here we have, I'm not going to let an antiquated Senate rule undermine the foundation of our democracy. You cannot filibuster American rights to vote. The right to vote is sacred. The Senate filibuster is not. Remember in 2017, letter urging Mitch McConnell to protect the legislative filibuster for the good of our democracy was signed by 32 Senate Dems, many of whom now believe the filibuster is a Jim Crow relic. This is all true. It just shows how unprincipled these senators are. Four years ago, when it benefited them, they supported it for the good of the land. Now that it doesn't benefit them, it's racist. Like 30 Republicans signed it too when they were the majority party. Imagine getting 30 Democrats to sign on to it now. You'd be lucky to get three. These, this whole thing is it, just garbage. And then this. Well, who the fuck elected her? 
Why is she prepping for the G7? What is she prepping for the G7? We didn't elect her, but that pretty, she's in the fucking desk. And then one quick one. Uh, I just want to make it. To every restaurant owner who can't find workers because people are getting paid too much to stay at home, please join me to discuss how you spent both rounds of forgivable PPP loans and 28 plus billion being distributed for American Rescue Plan. Most of them didn't get it. So, Chuck Schumer decries omission of Senate One Six support, and he's so pissed off because this is on Mediate. They couldn't. They didn't link it to Trump because Trump has nothing to do with it. The reports, everything. But when you have the media, you don't hear that. Asked Chuck Schumer about this at his weekly press conference just a few minutes ago, and here's what he told me. This morning, put out their January 6th report. I'm wondering how what's in that report and what's not in that report will affect how you'll push for a commission going forward. Well, we do believe there ought to be a commission to go forward. They almost assiduously avoided the words, two words that are vital to finding out what happened on January 6th, Donald Trump. Uh, The Republicans reportedly didn't want any mention of him at all. And to find out, I think we should find out if other members of Congress participated in this as well. I mean, the only significant mention of the former president in this report is that the entire speech he gave on the ellipse that day is included as an appendix to this report, suggesting that the authors did uh, find some connection to it, uh, but didn't explore any further. I think we're going to hear a lot from Democrats in the coming weeks about how where this report leaves off, a January 6th commission should be. Uh, Republican lawmakers, Ted Cruz, uh, Josh Hawley among them, atta- uh, attacking those by saying that, well, you have unequal justice because you're not similarly prosecuting uh, folks who took place, for instance, in, in racial justice riots and, and protests um, in 2020 le- leading up to the election. Your response to that argument that this is uh, somehow unequal justice? It's, a, it's, it's ridiculous. It's another fig leaf that the Republicans are using to try to falsely equate the attack on January 6th with uh, some of the violence that was a corollary to the social justice uh, protests in the summer of 2020. The two are not the same. Anybody who watched both on from the comfort of their couch at home could tell you the same thing. The bottom line for the FBI and DOJ is if the cases are there, you bring them, whether it's uh, uh, emanating from a Black Lives Matter protest or a Trump rally that tries to take over the Capitol. If you have instances of violence and you can prove cases against those uh, folks that were engaged in it, you bring those cases. I think that's what the FBI has done here, certainly with respect to January 6th. There's many, many, many more cases to bring than there were cases coming out of the um, out of the 2020, summer 2020 protests, but, you know... you Very similar, I should say, not different at all from what Trump was saying in November of 2020. Uh, yeah. it's, he hasn't changed at all. It's the same old, same old. Yeah, I mean, this is not really the Rolling Stones' greatest hits. This is more like Spinal Tap. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is not just uh, peddling the big lie and recycling the same lines over and over again. He's attacking, attacking Dr. Anthony Fauci and so on. Wolf, at one point during this event on Saturday night, he referred to the 2020 election as the crime of the century. It would have been the crime of the century had he been successful in overturning the election results. And so, you know, at, at every turn, he is just uh, pulling the wool over the eyes of the, uh, of the folks on, on, uh, on the stage there with him in North Carolina and in the audience. And as long as Donald Trump stays on the road, 
Trumpism stays alive and I, it's dangerous for the country. It's very dangerous for the country because there are a lot of people who actually believe this stuff. They believe it, Wolf. And I, I will remind you, because you and I have been through this journey together. Uh, you know, when Donald Trump referred to the press as the enemy of the people, he did it over and over and over again. It got to the point where a deranged Trump supporter was sending pipe bombs to, to CNN in the mail and to other people around the country. Uh, when he was referring to immigrants as being part of an invasion, there were mass shooters whose manifestos referred to immigrants as being part of an invasion. We had the January 6th insurrection, and now you have Trump out on the road once again because he hasn't been pushed to the side by his party, again, repeating these same dangerous lies. And, Wolf, I think there's a very strong chance that we may see more political violence in this country stoked and incited by this president. He's done it before. It looks like he may do it again. And it looks like, based on what we're hearing from him and his supporters, it's only just beginning these rallies, these statements, these speeches. It's going to... It's going to continue to go on. It is going to continue to go on. And I will tell you, I talked to a former Trump advisor about this earlier today who said one of the reasons why Trump is able to do this and get out on the road and spread these lies and hostility and hatred is because there have been no consequences for him, Wolf. Why have there been no consequences for Donald Trump, you know, calling uh, the state of Georgia and trying to get 11,000 votes out of the state of Georgia? Why has he been able to get away with strong arming his own vice president and inciting an insurrection up on Capitol Hill that resulted in the deaths of a handful of, uh, of good Americans? As long as he remains out on the road and r remains uh, in a position where he can spread these big lies, I think there's the potential for more political violence in this country. And it just goes against, as you know, Wolf, everything that this country stands for. We pride ourselves on not having this kind of political violence in this country. But as long as Trump remains on the stage, it remains a strong possibility. You would Wolf. think some, some people close to him would tell him, uh, they're not know, doing stop it. doing this. This is really, really dangerous. I, because I think they're making a buck off of it, Wolf. And I think that's just a, you know, a sad commentary on where things stand right now. Yeah, it's very sad indeed, Jim Acosta. They are always ratcheting up. This rhetoric, because it's all they have. They can't let this shit go. They just can't let it go. And then... And I'll play sound bites in a second, but I really... This Lafayette part stuff, it, it's... um, It's pretty... um, Yeah. Michael Dorstein, fire was in the basement of St. John's, and it's out. My Washington Post colleague Scoops reports the D.C. Fire Department firefighters got there with a police escort, quickly put out the blaze, did not appear to cause any significant damage, and it's unclear how it started. It's been a year since the fire at St. John Church during George Floyd protest. Church rector Rob Fisher tells we top. There's still a lot of repair to be done, hundreds of thousands of dollars, despite the Fisher tells me the work for racial justice continues. Which is, please don't burn our shit. Again, a source says tear gas never was used. Instead, smoke canisters were deployed, which don't have an uncomfortable irritant in them. And the source says Park Police didn't know President Trump would be walking across the park several minutes later. The reason the crowd was dispersed with smoke canisters is that the moment officers were being pelted with water bottles, another factor was the protesters climbed on top of the structure on North End and Lafayette Square that had been burned the day before. Now, let's remember they were scaling the fence of the White House, and they needed to raise the fence. They mocked Trump for it, and then a month later, they, or a couple months later, they put a fucking green zone up. A green zone. Green zone. 
Van Der Veen falsely claims the clearing of Lafayette Square last June happened to establish an appropriate security perimeter for a riotous mob. No, they cleared the peaceful protesters out of a way for Trump photo op. The narrative Van Der Veen is mocking is correct. Yet another media false tale. With his photo op in front of the church there. Uh, Tell us what we're learning. And tell us what this means. Tell us if this raises more questions than it answers. What do you think? Well, I certainly think it raises more questions than it answers. I mean, you know, the the IG report is saying that the park police cleared the park with the purpose of setting up this fence, because obviously the protesters needed to be moved back from this area where they were defacing statues and potentially pulling down the Andrew Jackson uh, statue and so on. I was in the Rose Garden that day when Trump gave that speech and said, I'm going to go to this special place talking about the church. And you could hear the park police and other uh, federal forces, D.C. police, clearing that park. They were violently pummeling protesters, tear gassing protesters. Remember at the time the White House was telling us, oh, we didn't use tear gas. The, the D.C. police were using tear gas. Uh, the other thing that is not clear about all of this is, you know, what did the White House team know at this time? Uh, according to the inspector general's report, they did not speak to senior White House officials. They did not speak to the Secret Service. So this certainly raises more questions. And I have to say, you know, when I read through this report, it sounded as if this inspector general was auditioning to become the inspector general at Mar-a-Lago. Because, I mean, this is almost a whitewash of what occurred on June 1st. These protesters were largely demonstrating peacefully and were violently clear from that park. It was a just a huge blow to the First Amendment, I think, in this country. You can't have protesters pummeled by police officers when they're trying to make a statement about racial justice in this country. The IG report didn't say, though, that that didn't happen. What it really specifically... Tonight, vindication for the Trump administration. An inspector general report finds federal law enforcement officers that aggressively cleared protesters and media from outside of the White House during last summer's social justice demonstrations did not do it to make way for this presidential photo op at St. John's Church. Is that your Bible? The findings support this from then-Attorney General Bill Barr to face the nation's Margaret Brennan last June. I gave the green light at 2 o'clock. Obviously, I didn't know that the president was going to be speaking later that day. But when Bill Barr arrived at the White House later that day, the report says he asked police, are these people still going to be here when the president comes out? The use of force in Lafayette Square was heavily criticized and is the subject of a federal lawsuit against the Department of Justice. The report found the U.S. Park Police and other agencies that swept through what is now Black Lives Matter Plaza did it to make way for expanded security fencing after nights of violent unrest. 7 o'clock, that's a flashbang. All right, so we are just minutes away from D.C. 7 o'clock curfew. You heard the flashbang. That is an attempt to clear the crowd out. While the IG report says officers made three announcements to disperse the crowd, it came as a surprise to many. Other law enforcement officers, demonstrators, and our CBS News crews on the scene did not hear any warnings. Tonight, the former president, Mr. Trump, is praising the report as highly detailed. He says it completely and totally exonerates him. But it's important to note that this was limited in scope. It was done by the inspector general for the Department of the Interior, focused on the U.S. Park Police response. It did not talk to Barr or other former Trump administration. Chuck, this is a really surprising finding by the inspector general of the Interior Department. They took a look at this, an independent investigation. And they found that the decision to clear the park made by the park police 
had nothing to do whatsoever. They found no evidence that it had anything to do with the president's decision to have a photo op and walk through there and have a photo op at the nearby historic church. They had decided, the park police, to clear that park of protesters hours before, according to this report, so a contractor could install some anti-scale fencing. And that decision was made irrespective of what Trump decided to do. In fact, there's a moment in this report where we've all seen on video, the attorney general walks into that park and speaks with the park police incident commander. We couldn't yeah. hear from the video what was being said. According to this report, Barr then informs the park police that the president is coming down, and the park police commander is shocked by this. And he says, according to this report, are you freaking kidding me? Now, uh, the, the thing about that episode is it does show that Barr seemed to be trying to speed it up. Once Trump made the decision to come through there, Barr went down and sort of said, hey, let's get this thing moving. But the decision to use force against those protesters, which remains controversial, Chuck, was not made, according to this report, because Trump wanted a photo op. Now, I should also add, uh, Chuck, that this report finds some fault with the way that operation was undertaken. For example, it finds that the park right. police wasn't going to use tear gas, but Washington, D.C. officers did fire tear gas at the crowd. It finds that many members of the crowd did not hear the three warnings they were supposed to get to disperse before the police moved in, and it finds that Bureau of Prisons officers, who nobody can even was even understood why they were there, fired pepper balls at the crowd. But it doesn't second guess the decision to clear the protesters. It says that the park police was within their rights. And this is controversial, Chuck. Black Lives Matter is suing the Justice Department in federal court over this. And our own Garrett Hake was there that day and, and reported, if you recall, that the protests were not violent at that moment until the police moved in and caused the violence. That was his direct bird's eye reporting, Chuck. So this remains an issue of controversy, so, uh, can, but the can, narrative we thought we knew yeah. is... This is just unacceptable. Th this is what's wrong with the media. You go through this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this quickly because I know we're long today. Park police violently cleared Lafayette part at Trump's behest to treat his unquestionable truth by corporate media. Today it was revealed the independent IG report to be an utter falsehood. Watch how readily and easily they spread lies. The IG report could not be clear. The media narrative was false from start to finish. Plans to clear the park were made before anyone knew Trump was coming. Some journalists, like Mar Mary um, Hemingway, said this at the time, but were debunked and declared liars by fact checkers. The IG is a long-time respected D.C. official from the Obama years. Yet again, the corporate media outlets that most loudly and shilly, shilly, shrilly denounced information to the point of demanding censorship in its name got caught spreading outright falsehoods for weeks. It's hard to count how many times they've spread major fake stories in the Trump years. They have nobody but themselves to blame for the utter collapse in trust by the public, which has rightfully concluded they cannot and should not be trusted. The IG, who issued this report, is a D.C. official from the Obama years. He obtained proof showing the decision to clear the park was made well before Trump decided to go to the church. Liberals still refuse to believe it because they adore corporate media and want to be lied to. This as a CNN fact checker. They're still not giving up the ghost. They're not going to give up the ghost. Why would they? Why? Eight bylines in the New York Times. They did eight articles. And there's a reason they did it. 
a total reason they did all of this. Watch. The pure pain and disappointment of NBC's Ken Dillian has to admit the decision by Park Police to clear Lafayette Square BLM protesters on June 1st was not so Trump could go. It got worse for CIA Ken as he has to relay the Interior Department's IG report findings that the BLM mob was violent. There was some violence on the part of the protests in the days leading up to this. There was property destruction and 49 Park Police injures officers were injured. You never heard that you never heard it this stuff is just horseshit interior department ig we did not find evidence that potential presidential police uh visit the park at st john's church influenced the park decision morning joe which i played Mocks the IG report, debunking the media widely circulated claim that U.S. Park Police were removed, blah, 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 as a photo of claim that didn't debunk the story. But here's just a, I have another one I'll wait for next show to do. Here's just one, and then I'll do a Drew Holden, and then we'll hold the rest. But look at this. Trump gas protesters. Trump is ignoring Russian bounty on our troops. Trump called soldiers suckers. The lab leak theory is a conspiracy. There won't be a vaccine by the end of the year. It's not safe to open schools. All lies. Hunter Biden post story is a Russian disinformation. Donald Trump told politicians in Georgia to find the fraud. DeSantis is evil and Cuomo's doing a great job. Locking down only for 15 days to slow the spread. It goes on and on and on. Those were just from 2020. Russia hacked the election. Michael Cohen went to Prague. Find people on both sides. Trump Jr. got the WikiLeaks dump in advance. P-tape. And of course, Russian collusion. And we're just going to flip through this. This is Drew Holden. Another Trump-related conspiracy has crashed. It burned. This one about protests a year ago in Lafayette. Just look at what they did. They made, and I'm going to make this big so you can read it. They made up another narrative. That's CNN. A few of CNN's key voices chime in along similar lines. Here's Acosta. Just unbelievable use of military and police force. One of the more insidious problems the last few years is journalism fact-checking. No, they cleared police protests out of the way to photo op. Daniel Dale. But it wasn't just CNN. New York Times. I asked this earnestly. Do you still stand behind the reporting? I mean, these articles were based on Nothing. Nothing. Washington Post may have been the most egregious. They had multiple pieces of news analysts, so not opinion commentary, mind you. This is the news section comparing the United States to dictatorship because of the incident. MSNBC was close, pretty close behind them, both in print and broadcast. There are just a few examples. Again, Kaz is clear. This thing happened because Trump wanted it to. The narrative was omnipresent. Here's AP picking up the same framing, both when the incident happened and even months later. Peaceful demonstrations clear from Lafayette Park so Trump could walk across the park to church. You may wonder what the impact of getting this wrong was. I would recommend reading the 
Intimal David Shore on polling. The real inflection point in our polling was the Lafayette Park incident. That's when support for Biden shot up steadily. They couldn't get him on the phone call. The impeachment didn't work. People knew it was bullshit and partisan, other than never Trumpers and hardcore Democrats. At the risk of putting too fine a point on it this moment, while surely not uncausical phenomenon, represented a turning point where current President Biden overtook Trump in the polls. We now learn that the narrative surrounding that event wasn't true. Why would it be true? We don't do things. Some of the about faces on this were pretty dramatic. Here's one example from ABC that elides how they could have possibly gotten the story so dramatically wrong. What say you? Does a casual, does a casualty still pa- pass muster for you? More of the same from the USA Today. Police do not clear. From NPR, Watchdog Report says police do not clear. Yes, Lafayette Square is Tahir Square. I don't have room for all the bad takes, but here's just a smattering from Vox. And it was just the media, plenty of Democrats. Speaker of the House. MSDNC. Senator Schumer. Senator Warren. They knew this would help them. All the never-Trumpers knew this was a boon. They had him. They could get Trump. That was a bridge too far. So they made it up. They had no proof. They never researched. They never even rebutted the CS. The police would say it wasn't, but they didn't believe him because the police are bad. For the media, all of this was great. Here's AP. These are the photos they submitted. I'm just going to cover my face. This is the bullshit they submitted. Riots. Murder. Beating people in the street. I guarantee that photo is staged. And now this is their narrative. This is their narrative. They're sighing a relief. He's saving the world. He's so good. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. He can't even remember what the fuck he's talking about, but sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Well, we'll all go with it. It makes sense. It's good. It's all good because, you know, we, we don't want that guy. That guy is bad. That guy is just a horrible human being. And he can't be president of the United States. 
We, we can't let it happen. He's got to get out. The racist took over the... Co- okay, we don't have any proof of that. The redneck... Oh, we don't have any proof of that. We, we don't have proof of anything. We just make shit up. Because we make shit up and it works. Because you don't have a choice when everybody's doing it. Well, you're, you're good to go. So before we get to a son doing this, here's our... Second best military recruiting or army recruiting. I I really well, this is why I joined the army. Last year, ninety thousand high school graduates joined the army. Some came for the challenge, some for the excitement, some for the new army college fund. For every dollar they put in, Uncle Sam puts in five or more. So after two years in the army, they can have up to fifteen thousand two hundred dollars for college. Call for your free booklet on the Army College Fund. You'll be in good company. In the Army. You're reaching deep inside you for things you've never known. It's been tough, rough going, but you haven't gone alone. We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Hey, First Sergeant. Good morning. You can do it in the Army. In today's Army, when artillery goes to the field, so does high technology. Computers, laser-guided missile systems, and teamwork honed to a split-second response. And the Army gives you this kind of training with just a two-year enlistment. Because we need you in the Army. A Ranger never takes the easy way out. You're reaching deep inside you for things you've never known. That's why getting into the Rangers is tough, and the training is tough. So it makes me feel like I'm part of something really special. Be all that you can be. And I'm not the only one. You can do it in the army. Be all you freaking can be. Don't worry. The last one's coming in a second. So let's really think about this, okay? We, we have spent a lot of time as a media dogging the Trump kids. I mean, the Trump kids are bastards. They are pieces of shit. They are human filth. And now we find out he used the N-word in text. He dressed his white lawyer a couple times. Biden addressed his white lawyer as N-I-G-G-A. And I'm not going to spend a long time on it, but I just wanted to say, okay, that would get you done. Here's a Republican. This is the real Jim Crow. Fusilli Spock. Imagine if one of Trump kids did any of this. Any conservative was found. I mean, look at that. Discharge of cocaine, smoking crack, had a child out of wedlock, slept with sibling spouse, 
got caught lying on a 4473 buying a gun? Jiminy crickets, Andy. We'd have some serious problems. I mean, remember, they, they were saying that they were fucking Russian agents. Nothing. Nothing. Nobody fucking cares. This is what Brian Seltzer covered. Try to imagine one of Biden's kids talking about making conservatives cry again. Real quote from Donald Jr. last night. By voting, we can only keep America great again, but we cannot make liberals cry again. It's true. And for silly spot and everybody, put side by sides. Just for reference. We have proof from foreign media, because our media won't cover it, that the president's son was using racial Epitaphs. But we're talking about Don Jr., who's in charge of Dick. But this is where we're at. I mean, this is Joe Lockhart. Okay, maybe I made up the convo, but you know what? Exactly what they're thinking. Every relax. This is satire. Satire to make the point centers that are signed the president's fate, who only watch Fox News, have never heard this stuff before because Fox is part of the cover up. Overheard between, let me get this so it's centered, CNN, is this all Schiff has? I've heard all this before and it wasn't convinced then either. I thought they had more evidence than just guessing that Trump was thinking. This isn't going to play well in November unless they have actual crime. Am I doing this right, Joe Lockhart? Or should I wait until 4,000 people retweet it? I see what you did there. Or Maggie Haberman, knowing that Half, uh, 25% of blacks have gotten the vaccine. And the White House is going after white people because white people need to do the v- vaccine. NASCAR, rednecks. Notable, the former president who wants to get credit for the vaccine developed during his presidency has declined to take such a t- state. And call tell people to get the vaccine. Yeah, he's not in charge. He doesn't have social media. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't have shit. When are you, Maggie Haberman, going to cover that 25% of blacks have gotten the shot? That means 75% of them haven't. We're supposed to be an all-person-of-color country. Isn't that more important than white folk? I think so. So here is our last entry, and then we'll close this pig up. I got the border. I got a bunch. I'll save it for the next show. My hometown. My favorite recruiting video. I'm from a town where things are as good as they come. And it's pictured in my mind Just as clear as the midday sun Now I'm out here in the darkness And the rain is coming down Never was like this In my hometown My hometown 
town Where things are as good as they come And it's pictured in my mind Just as clear as the midday sun If I didn't look like 275 pounds of chewed bubblegum, I'd sign back up on that fucking thing. I loved my hometown. I remember being on long patrols in the rain. I didn't care where the fuck I was in the world. When it really sucked, I would start singing, my hometown. And by the time I was done, I'd have everybody singing that shit. Of course, it was tactical singing. Like, it's not like this. It was fun. It was fun on the platoon net. So... I I had that to do this show. I was going to do a military show, but then everything blew up. So I decided, well, you know, for a bumper between stupid, we're going to do it. So <clears throat> I didn't get to cover this, but to, with everything we've covered today from N-Words to Lafayette Park to Omar to this gay chick, the media dem conglomerate is garbage fire. So to end the show, we're going to do a This is the America and border, it's going to be a little long, but for fuck's sake, do you think Pence could have got away with the bullshit Kamala Harris is doing? It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. Yeah, this is America. Runs in my area. I got the strap. What they do see at their, at their own border, children being lowered over fences, children coming in with, you know, phone numbers stenciled on, on their hand. And so the question has come up, and you heard it here, and you'll hear it again, I'm sure. It's why not visit? the border. Why not see what Americans are seeing in this crisis? Just quickly put a button. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. 
So you, this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, mean, I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. Well, I, I mentioned I, it because I, even, I, I know Republicans have certainly come at you on this. But Democratic Congressman Cuellar as a border district has said to the, you and the president, come. You need, I care you need to about, see this. Listen, I care about what's happening at the border. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. So, Richard, though, uh, I mean, here she is. I, I get it. It wasn't the greatest answer, uh, not defending that. But she's on these trips, meeting with these world leaders, talking about the origins of why these people want to leave their countries. And she's getting nailed on whether or not she's been to the U.S.-Mexico border. I, I get it. Her answer could have been better. But isn't the question about what is happening on these trips? What are the tough conversations that she's having with these leaders about why people want to leave? And what do we know about what happened there? Because that's the very difficult um, I'd say almost impossible to navigate landscape uh, when you're dealing with countries that have a lot of corruption, that have a lot of reasons why people want to leave, and she's going there and getting in their faces. Doesn't she deserve some credit for that? And what do we know about what came out of it? And Mika, the point of Lester's yeah. question there, and of course he was there covering her trip and looking at the root causes of that was, yes, we have to look at root causes, but there is a crisis at the border right now, today, and you have to address that today while you look at the root causes down the road. I think also part of leading is optics and, and showing that and showing uh, w w what you care about and what your goals are and going to the border would have made a big difference. This has been a discussion for weeks. I'm not sure why it hasn't happened. It's a lot easier said than done. We turn next year to Vice President Kamala Harris concluding her high stakes visit to Guatemala and Mexico taking on border issues and the root causes of some of what the U.S. is seeing on the U.S. border with Mexico. The vice president meeting today with Mexico's President Obrador, insisting the U.S. must focus on the root causes of migration. She said this is not a quick fix in talking with reporters, and she was pressed again about when she'll go to the U.S. border. If this were easy, it would have been handled a long time ago. And there is no question that it is complex, in fact, and that we have to navigate the complexities of it with a goal of solving it. Listen. I, I've been to the border before, I will go again. But when I'm in Guatemala, <laughs> dealing with root causes, I think we should have a conversation about what's going on in Guatemala. Vice President Harris stressing this will not produce immediate returns, but pledging we will see progress on this. Vice President Kamala Harris just wrapped up a two-day trip to Guatemala and Mexico, focusing on the root issues of illegal immigration. But tonight, Harris is pushing back on criticism that she has yet to visit the southern border, as new video reminds us why the situation is so dire. Here's CBS's Weijia Jiang.
New video from U.S. Border Patrol shows an abandoned five-year-old girl from Guatemala running alone along the wall in California. Agents quickly rescued her, but her journey illustrates the migrant crisis that Vice President Kamala Harris is tackling on a two-day trip. It is her first big diplomatic assignment from President Biden. Today, the Vice President met with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, after visiting Guatemala. If this were easy, it would have been handled a long time ago. And there is no question that it is complex. The latest government figures show border apprehensions remain at a 20-year high. Republicans said acknowledging the problem is not enough. The vice president is finally hitting the trail this week to talk about the border crisis, but that seems to be all it is, is talk. The only problem is she's not visiting the border. Pressed about why not, Vice President Harris said she had not been to... Just before the president left on his mission, he pulled the plug on those talks he was having on infrastructure with Republican senators. A new group of Republican senators, bipartisan group, is meeting right now, but the Republican leadership is throwing cold water on that effort. And progressive Democrats are getting pretty fired up as well. I want to read you a tweet from AOC. She said, President Biden and Senate Dems should take a step back and ask themselves if playing patty cake with GOP senators is really worth the dismantling of people's voting rights, setting the planet on fire, allowing massive corporations and the wealthy to not pay their fair share of taxes. Can these talks... Harris hasn't been to the border since the president tasked her with handling the increasing number of migrants. Journalists repeatedly questioned her about this, this on her trip. We've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. Look, this issue of whether or not to go to the border is rooted in pure politics. The GOP knows Harris remains a popular rival and may one day run for president herself. The vice president, for her part, viewed the trip as a success, and she did demonstrate an ability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with world leaders. But her inability to more quickly bat away a criticism from GOP critics clouded the focus of the trip. All of this, Tony, yet another reminder of how hard it'll be to achieve consensus on the issue of immigration. And meanwhile, there are millions of lives in the balance. Ed, thank you very much. Hey, Rob, we're going to Vice President Kamala Harris right now in Mexico this morning on her first foreign mission as vice president. She's been tasked by President Biden to help reduce the flow of migrants to the U.S. border, and she is sending a blunt message, do not come. On her first foreign trip as vice president, Kamala Harris issuing a direct warning to anyone considering making the illegal journey north. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. You know, <laughs> there's a thing going up to keep it the military thing today. The Congress. To change the selective service for women also. Now, by no means do I think women should be coming back in body bags. I had a daughter. When you have a daughter, it changes your opinion on a lot of shit. But more importantly, if you want equality, then the answer is yes. And this goes with Kamala, Omar, Tlaib, you name it. Mara Gay, the media with Lafayette Park, with fucking the Capitol... Accountability and responsibility. You cannot spend four years burning shit down figuratively and literally and then just let everything go by the wayside because same team and then come back and say we cover each other right. You know, I watched a little bit of Chris Wallace yesterday and 
he's just like CNN. He literally says that Trump wasn't treated differently than other presidents. It's Trump's fault. He was treated that way. Well, not if you're a professional. If you're a professional, the decorum and the attitude, how who you're covering acts has the square root of dick to do with how you cover it. I mean, let's be honest, boys and girls. Pretty much everything that was major for four years was a lying narrative, and now everything major for the first 120 days is Republicans pounce. She either pulls on her big girl panties or get the fuck out of here. She doesn't get to be treated differently just because she has a JJ and she's kind of black because she's definitely not African American. Doesn't come from Africa. So that wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Make sure you share this with your family and friends. And leave comments by going to fubpodcast.com. You can find this episode, last episode, and links to every other episode. Remember to disconnect from your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeahs. I'm doing a shorter show than usual. I'm not going to the 2.30 so I can get this produced. And in the book, so bro, Matt in Oregon, when he starts his segue back to home station, has something to listen to. And then I'll crank another one out Wednesday or Thursday to finish his ride back to the socialist states of Oregon with a little bit of entertainment, even if only for two hours. I apologize for being off the net for a long time. COVID fucked me up and I really felt like dog shit. And it kind of made this podcast uh, like 100 100 pounds of shit in a one pound bag. But I promise Wednesday or Thursday will be our next podcast, depending on what my wife's schedule is. So it's 16 or 17 June. We'll reunite again for no more calamity, hypocrisy, and bullshitty-da coming from our betters. Thanks for listening. Take care.